Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, in the midst, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human, like, a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction, being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions, without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels." Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from, the, from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings." And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around." Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. 
Now we're going to take our time tonight to bring some things out of this section of Scripture. We're not quite done with verses 1, 2, and 3 that we started with last week because there's a couple things I want to pull out real quick. And then we're going to begin to break down the rest of the verses through 28. Like I said earlier, we won't be finishing these verses tonight. We'll come back next week and look some more at the rest of these verses. But I want you to go back to verse 1 and notice how the focus changes from Ezekiel to the hand of the Lord. It says, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And so in the first verse, Ezekiel's telling you how old he is. Remember, he's 30 years, four months and five days. And he says, I was there and I saw God or I saw a vision from God. But notice how abruptly the context changes. Verse 2 goes on and says, On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came, doesn't say to me, does it? It says to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Isn't that amazing how it changes, the tense changes from I to him? And what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time right now to talk to you about the importance of being aware, of being, being aware and wary of preachers who put the focus on themselves instead of God. I really feel a need to take some time because the Bible actually says that in the last days there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be preachers and false shepherds who try to lead people to follow themselves. They want to have people following them. And I love how in this passage as I was studying it, I noticed it just jumped off the page. He started saying I and immediately the focus is put right back on God. And folks, what I really want you to hear is this. There are going to be preachers in the, in the last days who are going to want you to follow them. And there's a danger in that. Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verses 1 through 9. Because not only are there going to be preachers who want you to follow them, there's a problem with us as well where we actually, we kind of gravitate toward that. We have a tendency to start to say things like, well, I like so-and-so better than so-and-so. I have a tendency to follow so-and-so's teaching. I don't, I don't listen to so-and-so, but I like to follow so-and-so. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul says to the Corinthian church, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human, a human way? For when one says, well, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being, being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's building. Look at what he says. He goes, there's a problem in the church. We're saying, well, I follow Paul. They're saying, well, I, I follow Paulus. And Paul had to write back to him and say, hang on for a second. We're just instruments of the Lord, just tools of the Lord for his purposes. The glory should be going to God. You shouldn't be setting yourself up in camps because, well, I like so-and-so better than so-and-so. And over the years, we've done that in our churches where we say, well, I think so-and-so is a better pastor, or I think so-and-so is a better pastor. Paul said, look, all I did was plant Apollos came in the gifting he was given, and he watered. And if you're starting to put your focus on man, you got a problem. Folks, let me just tell you, the church will be healthier when preachers stop trying to get people to follow them, and when people stop trying to follow preachers. 
And just understand that there are different, well, didn't we remember from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16? He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. There's all different types. But we have a tendency to say, well, I like so-and-so better than so-and-so. Watch out for that attitude. Because the attitude should be, it's God that I'm listening for. And I can get something from this one, and I can get something from this one, and God will use them in different ways in my life. And when we take our eyes off of man and put them back on God, everything works itself out. The reason we get into our squabbles in our churches is because we put our eyes on man. Well, let me take you to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, look at verses 25 through 30. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, meaning Jesus, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who, is the, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Did John have a pretty big public ministry when God, when it, God began his ministry? Sure did. But it was for a season. And his role was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And when Jesus came on the scene, his time was done. By the way, Jesus described John the Baptist as of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. How did John the Baptist's life end? He was beheaded. He was put in prison because he preached the truth. And because of that, they got mad and imprisoned him. And then this young girl dances before the king, and he makes a rash vow. says, anything you want, up to the half of my kingdom. She doesn't know what she wants, and so she runs to her mama and says, he's offering this. What do I say? And then mama says, you go tell him I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And of men born of women, none have risen greater than John the Baptist. And that guy, his life ended on this earth by having his head cut off in prison because of a rash vow of a king. It ain't about us as much as we think. We have a tendency sometimes to measure how we're doing. No, just find out what it is that God's called you to do and just do, you know, some are planters, some are waterers, some are evangelists, some are shepherds, some are prophets. We all have different roles in the body and we have a tendency to start thinking about us. Whenever you find yourself measuring how you're doing, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. My question is, are you doing what he's asked you to do? Everything else, shouldn't we worry about it? I had this one pastor recently call me up and he says, I think there are people that can do a better job than me. I said, when did this become a competition? He goes, oh, it's not a competition. I said, yes, you think it's a competition because you think there's someone who can do better. He goes, I just feel like a failure because I'm pouring my lives into the lives of these people and, and, and I'm just not seeing any results. I feel like a failure. I said, okay, by your definition, Jesus was a failure. Because did not Jesus offer? Did not Jesus pour his life into the lives of Judas and others? Was Jesus a Well, of course not. I'm like, the prophet in me is not real good on the mercy when you call me for counsel. You're talking stupid. 
You put your eyes on yourself, and it's going to give you a bellyache. You take your eyes off of yourself, and you put it back on God. I sense in this passage that I, remember, Ezekiel's brand new to this prophet thing. He's been a priest, but he hasn't even been able to serve as a priest yet because he just turned 30 four months and five days ago. And he says, I was here and I saw visions and quickly he's reminded that it's God. Let me take you to one more passage. You're in 1 Corinthians 3 earlier. Go back to 1 Corinthians 2. So when you hear people in the church maybe even bad-mouthing the pastor because he's not gifted like the other guy. Remind them that it's God who we put our eyes on. These are just tools. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, and when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you, sorry, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you haven't studied some of the letters that Paul had to write back to these churches, he was accused of sounding really bold and powerful in his letters, but in person, he ain't too much. Paul said, my intent was not to be impressive. I didn't try to wow you with my speech. I wanted you to rest in your faith in the power of God and put your eyes on God. Ezekiel is being called by God to be a prophet. God's hand is upon him. And his first reaction is, I was here, and I, and quickly it's, the focus is back on God. Keep your focus on God. Take them off of men, and beware of anyone that tries to make you follow them. Because actually, and we're going to look at this real quickly, a large part of God's preparing his prophets for their role is to remind them of their weakness and his greatness. When God called people to be leaders in his purpose, and in his plan, and to be prophets, he reminded them of their weakness and his greatness. Go back to Exodus chapter 3 and be reminded with me as we look quickly at when Moses got his call. Exodus chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 12. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he's afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that, up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I love Moses' response. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Moses' first reaction is, I can't do it. By the way, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. Because none of us can. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We all, if anybody thinks, I can do that. I was, as a pastor, always leery of the people that volunteered. They usually had an agenda. Whenever we would say, hey, here's something we believe God wants to do, and we're looking for the ones God chose, I was always leery of the ones who said, I can do that. That meant they're probably going to do it in the flesh. But those who said, you know what, I don't know why, I don't feel capable, I don't feel qualified, but I feel like God wants to do, do those are the people that I wanted to work with. Oh, by the way, how does Moses do? If you know the rest of this story, when God says, I'm going to send you, what does Moses say next? I can't. I don't talk good. My brother talks way better than me. Oh, Isaiah, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, the year that the king Isaiah died, it Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And when he spoke, the threshold shook. And then he said, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And as you know, the angel came and took tongs and took coals from the altar and touched his lips. And then God said, whom will I send? Who will go for me? And what does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. But it was after he had said, I'm not worthy. You could pick probably somebody a little bit more pure. No, God says, you're the one I chose, but I love the fact that you realize you can't do this apart from my giving you clean, cleanness, righteousness, and my words. Oh, and by the way, then God says, you're going to be ever preaching and they're not going to listen. You need to keep that in mind. I've got a role for you, and it's not going to be having you preach at convention. Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Look at verses 4 through 19. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Don't miss that. That's going to be very important later on. And I said, he said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. 
For behold, I am calling the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but you shall, they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. In the call of Jeremiah, when God says, I've chosen you, his first reaction is, I can't. That's fine. I got no problem with that. God actually likes that response. Listen to the rest of this, though. Staying there is wrong. I'm going to ask you an honest question. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But how many of you that are sitting here today have had this thought to yourself that someone else could do something better than you? How many times have you thought someone else could share the gospel with this person better than I can? There's nothing wrong with thinking you're not qualified or capable. That's a good thing. But staying there is wrong. God said, don't say that and stay there. You see, when you say someone else can do it, you think that somehow, some way, it's tied to us. You see what I'm saying? It's like saying that there's something in James that you don't have. Well, is Jesus in James? Yes. Is Jesus in you? Did he ask you to do something? Then why do you think that James has something you don't have? Is there something in James's flesh that's going to be more powerful than you? No. But he has abilities. Oh, God doesn't care about abilities. He wants to use our willingness, our brokenness to show his glory. So, folks, when God asks you to do something, there's nothing wrong with saying, scared, not so sure. Are you sure, God? There's nothing wrong with that. We need to be humble enough to realize, Lord, I can't do this. Good. But don't stay there. Step out in obedience. I will do it. I didn't go here last night, but I'm going to give you a little extra, some land yap, as they used to say in Louisiana. You remember the story where David and his mighty men had their wives and their children captured while they were out fighting? They came back and found that all their wives and children had been captured, and they set off to go fight them, whoever it was that had taken them, and they set off. And as they're on the journey, some of the guys get tired. It could have been physical, it could have been emotional, who knows? But they said, look, you just go on. We're not, we can't go on with you. You guys go fight and they all, so some of the guys stay back and don't fight any, and don't go to fight. And they go and they get all their wives and their children back and they plunder these people and take all their possessions. And when they come back, the group that went on and fought came back and said, the guys that didn't go fight with us, they'll get their wives and children back, but they don't get to share in any of the plunder because we did the work. And David, being a man of God, said, no, they share equally. You know why David made that statement? Because David knew that even though these guys went and fought, they didn't do any more than the guys who didn't go and fight. It's all been done by God. And they get to share because God did it, not you. You know the story about the workers in the field and how some worked the whole day and some only worked an hour and he paid them all the same? What God is teaching us is 
you didn't do anything. It's all me. All I ask you to do is trust me. I will do it. Beware of those who think they're impressive. Beware of those who like having their name on the church sign. Beware of those preachers who say it's about them. And don't yourself start thinking some are better than others. You put your eyes back on God. And when it comes to you, there's nothing wrong with saying I can't. But don't stay there. If you ask me to do it, Lord, I'll do it. And believe that he will. Now, going back to Ezekiel chapter 1, we see that he then sees coming out of the north. Look at verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. By the way, this cloud that he sees here, I'm going to show you in the scriptures. We see it a lot. It's the Shekinah glory of God. And the Shekinah glory of God is many times described as a cloud. So go with me real quickly to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Then I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. i got to be honest with you. The pastor and me, uh, isn't it kind of sad that here's Moses going with Joshua up to meet with God, and he has to make sure that there's someone left in charge to handle the complainers while he's gone? just the years of pastoring coming out. Then Moses went on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Go to Numbers chapter 9. We see that when God came down on that mountain to meet with Moses, he came down in the form of a cloud, his glory in the form of a cloud, but it also had the appearance of what? We just saw it. Fire, a devouring fire. In Numbers chapter 9, look at verses 15 and following. On that day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. As you know, this is the part where it says whenever it moved, they moved. If it didn't move, they didn't move. But the glory of God came down on that tabernacle in the form of a cloud. But at night, it looked like fire. In the daytime, it looked like this glowing cloud. Well, go to Matthew chapter 17. You'll see this cloud again. Matthew chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because we worship man. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There's that glory again. The glory of God comes in the form of a cloud. We see it. There's many other times. I don't have time to take you there. But there's two others I want to show you. Because sometimes the cloud, well, you see, the voice of God was what was fearful in this. They weren't afraid of the cloud as much as the voice of God. But sometimes the cloud was very, very scary. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, look at verses 7 through 9 and then verse 16. In Exodus 19, verses 7 through 9, So Moses came and called the the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All 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 the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Now look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. See, when the cloud came down on that mountain, remember the instructions were, tell the people, don't go anywhere near the mountain. And don't even touch it. And if an animal touches it, it needs to be killed. If any human touches it, they need to be killed. Oh, and by the way, here's how you kill them. You can't even touch them while you're killing them. You need to use stones and just kill them with the stones. And when the cloud came down, what was happening with the cloud? You see it there in verse 16. Thunder and lightning, and the cloud was thick and dark. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. John said, After this I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, just like you saw on the mountain when God brought the law. And he said, don't let anybody come near. Before the throne, we see they were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And look at... This is what happens now. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, what Ezekiel saw. A lot of times we think, oh, that's what, Ezekiel got to see what John saw. No, 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 no. John saw what Ezekiel saw. Around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, and the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, folks, we're going to go into a lot more detail of the study of the cherubim and so on in next week's study. We're going to look at some of the things about them tonight. Uh, So don't get hung up right now on the fact that John saw six wings and, and Ezekiel saw four wings. I don't want you to get derailed. We'll deal with that next week. So don't get derailed on that. But what I want you to see is this. 
is the cherubim are underneath the throne of God. Remember, the throne of God is above them. They're there around the throne. And the, there's rumblings and flashings and peals of thunder. And you know why? Because in chapter 4, we see that God's about to bring a judgment on the earth, is he not? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and look at verse uh, 4 again. And I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. Remember, Jeremiah had, been seen, had seen a vision of a boiling pot coming from the north, and he was told, I'm going to be sending the kingdoms of the north down to judge the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah began his prophecies before Ezekiel did. And remember, the, 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 the destruction of Jerusalem and all that began in 605, as we looked last week, 605 B.C., when he came and Nebuchadnezzar came and took uh, Daniel and some other guys. And then 597 B.C., when they had the 10,000, which Ezekiel was a part of in that exile. And then by 586 B.C., the final destruction, which we'll get to in our study of Ezekiel. Jeremiah began prophesying to the nation of Israel, or especially the Judah, the tribe of Judah that's left in Jerusalem in that area there in the southern kingdom. A judgment is coming and Ezekiel now having been taken into exile in Babylon is at the Kebar Canal and the hand of the Lord comes upon him and he gives him a vision of the judgment of God coming from the north. We see underneath though these cherubim as we saw just now in a revelation and if you remember from our revelation study John sees the same four living creatures that Ezekiel had seen and in John's revelation, they appear with God on his throne at a time of judgment. Now, John's account seems to read like they have four separate faces. If you read John's account in Revelation, it says the one had this face and one had this face and one had this face. But Ezekiel's account clarifies it for us and shows us that each had four faces. I'm going to see if you've been reading your scriptures. Look closely. I'm going to give you a little quiz here. Keep you awake. Fear makes a lot of us have trouble sleeping. The right side of their face, this is the front, was, I'm going to give you the help. The front was human face. The right side was what? Lion, good for you. The left side was an ox. And the back side, an eagle. These living creatures are cherubim. And you say, Jim, how do you know this? Well, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 22. Ezekiel says, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes, and now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. And when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the, of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. 
And the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim. And he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under each under their wings. And I looked and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if it were a wheel within a wheel. So in other words, there was a wheel, but there was two wheels in each wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and the wheels are full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels and every one had four faces. The first had the face of a cherub, the second face of a human face, third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. By the way, that word cherub could also be translated ox. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kebar Canal. See it? These living creatures that I saw by the Kebar Canal are the cherubim. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, their wheels did not turn from beside them. And when they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, the, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord God of Israel was over them. And these these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kebar Canal. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, each had four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces and whose appearance I had seen by the Kebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. So here we see that these living creatures that he saw in his vision at the Kebar Canal coming with the judgment of God and God riding above them on the throne in the, in the cloud there above the cloud. These are cherubim. Now cherubim are also in the scriptures called guarding angels or protecting angels. We're not going to turn there because of our time, but if you were to go to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 20 through 22, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, God kept them from eating of the tree of life. What did he do to keep them from eating of the tree of life? He sent cherubim there with a flaming sword to protect the tree and to keep them from going to... By the way, do you think Adam and Eve would get by him? No. But I want to show you in Ezekiel 28 something that some of you may or may not know. Satan was one of these cherubim. Do it Ezekiel 28, look at verses 11 through 17. It says, Moreover, verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. 
I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. We'll break this passage down when we get to Ezekiel 28 in 2017. But, uh, um, but the thing is this. Look closely. Remember how we've seen that amongst the wheel, whirling wheels of the cherubim, there are these coals of fire? Satan was one of these cherubim. He got to be in the presence of God. And he lost his position. We'll get to that in a lot more in our study. The time that we have left, though, what I want to do tonight is to show you that the wheels of the cherubim have been mentioned before this. For all my life, I thought that the first time we ever saw the whirling wheels or the wheels of the cherubim was in Ezekiel chapter 1 when he saw these cherubim and the wheels within a wheel. Now keep in mind, it says that there were wheels, one wheel for each cherubim, but there were actually two wheels for each cherubim in the sense that there was one that would go this way and one that would go this way. I mean, it's a hard, you understand what I'm saying? So if they want to go this way, it went that way, or that way, they went that way. It was a wheel within a wheel. And as I was just doing a study and doing some digging, God took me on a journey that I didn't expect. I want you to see that the wheels of the cherubim were shown to us in the Ark of the Covenant. Don't lose sight of the fact that the spirit of the cherubim was in the wheels. And when they rose, the wheels went with them. If they went, the wheels determined which way they'd go, right? Go back with me to Exodus chapter 25. God's giving Moses the instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, look at verses 10 through 22. He says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. You shall make it on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and another cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another toward the mercy seat, and their faces shall, of the cherubim shall be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony... I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Listen closely to what God says. He says, I want you to build a box. I want it to be two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits deep. And I want you to put four rings at the feet of the cherubim. Because you're going to have two cherubim on this thing, one on each side. By the way, what do we know about the cherubim and their legs according to Ezekiel's vision? They're straight. They don't bend like yours and mine. They're straight. 
And he was to have on the top of this box two cherubim facing each other with their wings heading out forward. And he was to put two rings, one for each foot on each side. Now, he then said you take these poles and you slide them through the rings. And for years, I've known about these rings. I just assumed that was how they carried it. You know, they slide the pole through and you know you weren't allowed to touch the ark. The guy that did it died, Uzzah. And, and I just assumed that that was just simply to carry it. I didn't know, and I'm going to show you from further scripture, I didn't know that the rings were the wheels of the cherubim. The rings are the wheels of the cherubim. Because they're to be at the feet of the cherubim, but they're going to be on the side of the box. And there's two for each cherubim. How do the cherubim move? Whenever the wheels move, they move. And God put wheels on each side of the ark at the feet of the cherubim. They slid the poles through. And when the wheels move, they move. Keep, keep stick with me here. Go to Exodus 37. We'll see it again. Don't ever build your theology on one passage of scripture. Exodus 37, look at 1 through 9. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Oh, I love this, by the way. You know why the Bible tells us who made the ark of the, of, of the covenant? Because earlier in chapter 31, God told Moses, I've chosen Bezalel and Aholiab, and I've gifted them with craftsmanship to build all of this stuff. God doesn't just call preachers, folks. God pre-chooses who he wants to be the craftsman for the temple and to use their gifts. Folks, you don't think you got to do all the stuff that, that other people have to do. If your gifting is building something or drawing something or whatever it is, use the gifting God's given you. And he says, oh, by the way, I've chosen Bezalel and Aholiab, and I've given some other guys gifting in this area. They're the ones that are going to build this stuff. And here it says, Bezalel, the one God chose, made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and half its height and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and he made a molding of gold around it and he cast for it four rings of gold for its what? Four feet. I thought the rings were on the sides. They're on the sides. They're at the feet of the cherubim. Two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And they put the poles and the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat and so on. We're going to keep moving. Jump with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. I never saw till recently that those rings were the wheels. It's going to get even more clear in just a second. 1 Kings chapter 6, look at verses 14 through 28. Now, as we're going to 1 Kings, let me set the stage for you. The Ark of the Covenant has already been built. And God wants, sorry, David wants to build a temple for God. Remember, he says, here's the Ark of Covenant living in a tent. I'm living in this nice house. I'm going to build God a temple for the Ark. And God said, what? Not, you're not the one I chose. I've chosen your son Solomon to do it. David is awesome. He doesn't pout when God said no. He doesn't change his membership. He actually says that I want to help my son gather all the materials. He's young, inexperienced, and if he's the one God's chosen to build it, that's great. But I want to gather with the ability that I have all the wealth needed, the gold and the silver and everything. And you're about to see he even helped plan it with Solomon, the building of the temple. Oh, by the way, he never stepped foot in it. 
He got to be a part of it, but he never stepped foot in this temple. He died before it was built. Oh, for people that are willing to be a part of something they never, be, never get to experience. Chapter 6, though, verses 14 through 28. So Solomon built the house and finished it. This is the temple. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house that, that is the nave in the front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. And he overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Can you imagine how much gold this is, folks? This is mind-blowing, all right? But look, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. These aren't the cherubim that are already on the ark. They've already been made. He's now having made two cherubim 10 cubits high, all right? Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and the five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure in the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, so was, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the wall, one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So now we see that Solomon, when he builds his temple, he has these two big cherubim built and they've got big wings that are as wide as they're tall and there's two of them and one wing touches one wall, the other one touches the tip of the other one and then they go to the other wall, all right? So you say, Jim, where are the wheels? Go to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles, chapter 28. When I saw this, folks, I was like running around the house, showing everybody in my house whether they cared or not. 1 Chronicles, chapter 28. Look at verses 11 through 19. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple. This is what we just saw Solomon building. Now we're seeing the conversation between David and Solomon prior to the building of it. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the division of the priests and the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all the golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver vessels for each service, the weight of the golden lampstands and their lamps, the weight of gold for each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of silver for a lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lamp 
lampstand in the service, the weight of gold for each table for the shoe bread, the silver for the silver tables, and pure gold for the forks and the basins and the cups, for the golden bowls and the weight of each, for the silver bowls and the weight of each, for the altar of incense made of refined gold and its weight, also his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Does anybody know what a chariot is? It's a conveyance. And it's got wheels. The cherubim that David and Solomon put together in their plan to build for this temple... And David says, I'm going to give you all the gold you need for it, the silver you need for everything, and I'm even going to give you enough gold for the chariot of the cherubim that are going to stand in the temple. Folks, yes, the rings on the Ark of the Covenant did have the poles go through it, but they weren't just rings. They were the wheels of the cherubim. And it's been there all along. And let me share with you two last verses in the time we have tonight. And as I say two last verses, I mean two last passages. Go to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, look at verses 1 through 10. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The Foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire, fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the rings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils." Again, we see the picture of him coming in judgment, and he's riding on a chair. But you say, wait a minute, I thought he's going to come on a white horse. You'll have to come back next week to find out more about that. But go to Psalm 99. We'll close with Psalm 99. And once again, you'll see him coming in judgment, riding on a cherub. Psalm 99. Look at verses 1 through 9. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. What do the four living creatures keep saying? Oh, holy, holy, holy. 
And he, when he comes, he comes in judgment. He rides on the cherubim. And it's no accident that the Ark of the Covenant had cherubim by the mercy seat where God would sit above them. And that's where he would meet with them above the cherubim, above the Ark of the Covenant. And whenever it was to be moved, the wheels went wherever it went. I can't wait to show you some more stuff next week. We're going to come back and deal with the four wings, six wings. Thought he's coming on the white horse. How is he? Now he's riding on a cherub. Which is it? That's the fun of Bible study. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.